Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Bloodline. Everything Christ suffered on the cross was for you. In Bloodline, Skip Heitzig takes you on a journey to discover the overwhelming truth of Scripture. God loves you. The cross proves how much. To join the journey, visit thebloodlinebook.com. It is Wednesday, April 10th, and this is Quick to Listen, where we set aside hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. On today's show, we will be discussing death row and chaplains. Thank you for joining us this week. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. I'm joined by my co-host this week, who's Caleb Lindgren, our theology editor. Hey, Caleb. Hi, Morgan. Great to be back on the podcast. It's great to have you as well, and I'm looking forward to really diving into um, kind of really an intense topic to discuss this week. Yeah, who will join us to talk about it? Yeah, so uh, this week on the podcast, we have Reverend Earl Smith, who's uh, currently the chaplain for the 49ers and the Warriors, San Francisco area, which is awesome. Um, And then he's also uh, heads up a ministry or is involved with a ministry called uh, Concerned About Recovery Education or CARE. He was the youngest chaplain ever hired by the California Department of Corrections and was a correctional chaplain of the year in 2000. He wrote a book about some of his experiences called Death Row Chaplain, and this is why we have him on, because we want to hear about those. So, uh, Reverend Smith, it's a pleasure to have you on. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity, Caleb and Morgan. Thank you so much. So I have a question. If you're the chaplain of a sports team, do you have to cheer for that sports team as well? Well, I am enthusiastically happy to be (laughs) watching them be successful. Uh, And we've had some up times with the Niners and down and uh, through both of them. We're back headed in the right direction. And I'm excited about them. The Warriors, we had a lot of down times. Now we're having up times. And I'm not really a basketball fan per se, but I am a fan, nor football. I really just like ministering to men. And so I cheer them on. I cheer them on to their levels of victory and success in life. So, yes, I guess I am enthusiastic about what they do because I can see growth through their success, yes. All right, but you have to admit that the Warriors actually play, like, fun basketball, though. Like, all the threes are fun to watch. You know, what the the thing about the Warriors, I mean, they played the other night and every guy on the team scored and they were having fun and, you know, chapel service before that, the room was full. Uh, I'm excited because I've seen these guys grow. I've been been the Warriors chaplain for 31 years and, man, they've grown. I've been with the Niners for 30 years. And in both cases, I've just seen guys grow. The Warriors, I mean, there's people that when you go to other stadiums, they're wearing the guys' jerseys because they're just excited about how they play and the spirit by which they play. So, yes, it's exciting. All right. Well, 
I know I always try to sneak in a word about sports since I really do love sports. But um, as I hinted at, we have a different topic that we're going to get into today. And I'm going to try and kind of spell out the details. It's a little bit complicated. But essentially, last month, the Supreme Court ruled that Texas could not execute inmate Patrick Murphy if Texas did not allow his Buddhist chaplain into the death chamber with him. And in response to the Supreme Court's decision last Thursday, the state of Texas basically put out a ban um, that banned all chaplains from entering the death chamber with inmates. So Patrick Murphy's situation kind of echoes the story of Alabama inmate Dominic Ray. So Ray was executed back in February, and before he was executed, he requested to have his imam, who had ministered to him for years, to be present with him in the execution chamber. However, um, instead, the warden refused, citing prison policy. But then there was a subsequent investigation and a court case that revealed that there was no officially documented policy um, that would have denied Ray's request. However, unlike in the case of Patrick Murphy, the Supreme Court ruled against Ray, and they said that his complaint had come too close to his execution date. So in the April issue of Christianity Today, our editorial director, whom some of you guys know from when he's been on the podcast before, Ted Olson, he addressed Ray's case and he implored Christians to stand up for the rights of non-Christians. So I'm just going to read a couple sentences from that. This is what Ted wrote. He said, "Um, when we advocate on behalf of Muslims and other religious minorities, the golden rule dovetails with making common cause aggressive secularization and government overreach. But if you only argue for the religious liberty of your friends and co-religionists, what's the point? Even pagans do that. We who know true freedom do not want to use our own freedom for self-indulgence, but to serve others humbly in love. Advocating for religious freedom is not just about what's good for Christians. It's also about being Christians. So this week on Quick to Listen, we wanted to talk about the role of death row prison chaplains, what they offer to inmates, and why Christians should fight for all inmates to be able to be with their chosen chaplain when they die. So I would like to just do a gut check here, Caleb, especially now that we've kind of had back-to-back stories about this particular incident. What What is going through your mind when you hear these stories? I guess dismay. I, 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 can't, I can't fathom why... And they're probably, well, maybe there aren't, but I, I could imagine there may be good reasons for why you wouldn't allow a religious leader or minister of any faith into a death chamber. But I don't know why you wouldn't allow the last wishes of a dying man to be honored. I don't think the state, I don't think society has anything to lose. And then as a Christian, as somebody of deep faith, it's sad to see the rights of people with deep faith violated in that way and it and it does concern me uh in ted's editorial he's he was concerned about aggressive secularization and i i echo those concerns i think sometimes they're overblown there's a lot of like skies falling rhetoric out there and i don't know that we need to go that far but i am concerned that 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 sort of that aspect of reality particularly when it hits on one of the most sacred moments of somebody's life as they are passing away that that's not honored in that our society at least is willing to equivocate on some of that, is willing to sort of, I don't know, um, deny somebody's rights in, in that kind of a context. It makes me worried about other things um, and, and what the, the respect for deeply held faith convictions of any stripe is, what the status of the respect for those are in our society. Yeah, I think I, w- 
actually feel a harsh erection than dismay because it seems like again based on these types of responses there's some sort of like personal element in there that seems really blatantly unfair i mean if you want to have your chaplain in there no one no one in here it it seemingly is suggesting that this person will (laughs) save them from not dying in in a certain sense obviously in like the physical sense but this has been obviously a right that's been extended to many Christians, right? It's it's only kind of come to a head when we've had people of minority faiths that have wanted to be able to have their religious leader in there. Morgan and Caleb, I just wonder why would someone that is a Christian be concerned or upset that someone from another faith would want to have their chaplain present? It doesn't do anything to our faith. It doesn't do anything to the practice of our faith. The only thing it does is bring calmness to a person that is about to die. To exclude that person from the opportunity to minister and say the things that that guy or woman, because there are women on death row as well, as they prepare to die, I I think Christians, the, the compassion that we should have should be able to overlook what we, I mean, their faith practice is a decision they made. We know what we, we know what we believe and we know where we're going as a result of what we believe that that won't change in that moment for that person. Uh, and we saying no one can be with you. I don't see where that solves anything. Yeah. Reading both the articles from Texas and Alabama, what was served by that? In your experience, what is the role that chaplains often play in the lives of these inmates? Uh, When I got the uh, message that you wanted to do this on death row, I I just had to reflect. And I I realized that I was still holding some pain because April of 1992 is when California held their first execution in 26 years. And it was Robert Alton Harris. And I was the person I had to walk him into the uh, execution chamber. And I thought, after knowing Robbie for the years I knew him, ministering to him late at night and past midnight in some cases, and uh, carrying the word, having studies with men on the row, and, 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 and seeing them have their faith grow. I, I mean, I've had men that were on death row that I've had escorted over in chains to be baptized. I mean, the role of the chaplain and whatever the faith is to encourage the growth of your faith. We are people that represent hope, yet when you're dealing with death row, you're dealing with finality. So there's a hope element, but also the reality of finality that you have to be able to share with guys or women who are on death row. You're often walking with these people for a number of years, correct? I mean, death row is not this short stint before, you know, you get the lethal injection, right? Many of these people um, spend even more than a decade or maybe two decades? More than two decades on the row. Uh, California, you know, San Quentin, uh, where they have the males that are on death row, we actually went to court and had them build a chapel are a facility for guys on death row for chapel services on a weekly basis. So we have Bible study. We encourage to the best of our ability 
the faith to grow. We we encourage men. We we have to minister to them when their family members pass away, uh, and it doesn't negate it all. And, and I think that's what people have to understand. The role of the chaplain is not to negate it all. The role of the courts and society and the the sentence that's been handed down. We are called to show compassion as a chaplain going into a prison and working with men on death row. My role is not to even ask them why they're there or what they did, but it's to look beyond that because that's society's role. Society's role is to have a court of your peers sit and you sit before them and they determine a sentence. For me, as a chaplain or other chaplains, my role is to share in my faith Christ and in sharing Christ, hope that that person comes to a relationship that and grows from that relationship. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you ended up as a chaplain to the inmates on death row. Grew up a gang member, 19 years old. I was shot six times. I went to the hospital. My dad arrived there. The doctor says I was going to die. My dad grabs the guy and says, you do what you do best. I'm going to do what I do best. My father goes away to pray. And as I'm left in that room by myself, and this is in 1976, the word of God, 1975, the word of God comes to me and says, very clearly, you're not going to die. I have something for you to do. You're going to be a chaplain at San Quentin Prison. That was in 75. What did you think when you heard that message? <laughs> I laughed. I laughed because I, you know, you know, you realize that I, that you deserve what you got. I deserved it. It was not personal. It was just business. And I deserved to be shot. I deserved everything that happened to me in that moment. And because I had grown up in the church, there was no doubt who was speaking to me. Yet it was funny in the minute in the midst of my pain that he would want to bring compassion and speak to me and and, and speak. I mean, when I heard that voice, then all the 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 the, the bleed, the hurt, the pain that I felt from being shot, it stopped. I didn't feel any more pain and. I laughed. The doctor came in. I said, if I tell you where the bullets are, will that help? And he, he said, no. And I pointed at my nose, at my face where I'd been shot, at my neck and my back. And everywhere I pointed, the bleeding stopped. The doctor didn't understand that. I'd been shot six times, but I had seven holes in me. And we know that that's a sign of universality. That's a sign of Christ. And so it went from six to seven. And it was sealed by him. And in 75, he said, you're going to be a chaplain. When I called, when I announced my call to the ministry, they said, what is God telling you to do? I said, only thing I know is I'm supposed to be a chaplain in San Quentin prison. And, you know, people sort of said, okay, and laughed. I graduated from undergrad school. I had to change my degree object. I had to change what I said I was going to do. My career objective because they said it wasn't realistic for someone with my background to ever be a chaplain in the prison. Hmm. I knew God, I knew that God is that's what He called me to do. That's what He said I would do. I get hired by the Boy Scouts. I go to a service club meeting. I meet a Salvation Army chaplain, and somehow he says, "Hey, didn't you say that you were going to be? You, God told you to be a chaplain in the prison." I said, "Yeah." He says, "Well, there's an opening at San Quentin." I said, okay. A few <laughs> weeks later, 
he comes back. He says, did you ever apply? I said, nah, not yet. He says, I didn't think so. Here's the application. Fill it out. I fill the application out. I go through this whole process, and I get a letter saying, Dear Reverend Smith, we're sorry to inform you that you are not qualified. I get upset, throw the letter down. The Lord says, call him and ask him what you should do. What do you need to do to be qualified? I call, and there's a silence on the other end, and they say, Reverend Smith, we're sorry. We sent you the wrong letter. You are qualified. Wow. I went to the interview. They hired someone else. Five months later, that person was dismissed. They called me and asked me, was I still interested? And of course I was because that's where God, so I never applied for any other chaplain position, no other prison, because the only thing God told me was I was going to be a chaplain at San Quentin. And that's where I went. What was your first day of work like? For me, it was like this overwhelming sense of joy. Like, okay, God, I, I, I'm, I finally made it where you told me I was going to be. I walked. People say they hear all the cleaning of the gates and all that as you go through this whole process of getting I don't remember any of that. The only thing I remember is getting there and being able to walk to the chapel. And when I saw the chapel, it was like, wow, this is it. I see all the inmates walking around and they're sweeping and cleaning the chapel and waxing and they look at me and said, who are you? And I said, well, I'm the chaplain. And they said, okay, you know, it was like they laughed. I mean, I was 27 years old and, you know, I, I, I didn't have a clue of what I was really supposed to do other than be there because that's what God told me. I didn't have a clue. Wow. So you end up in this particular situation where you're in, in this position. How did, how did you go about building relationships with the different inmates that were there? I started off just looking at them. I call it a Joe principle. That's what I label it as, where his friends came, they saw him in his grief and in his misery and said nothing. They just simply sat, watched, observed for seven days. And I think that for what I did is I just observed. I watched what was going on. I took mental notes. I talked to people when they said things. I took notes. They taught me how to be a chaplain by the experiences that they shared. And it was a lot of just listening. It was at first, it was just a lot of listening because I realized that they had a lot of the stories were not true that they were telling me. It was their story. So I said, even if it's not true, it's their story and I'll listen. And and so I sort of grew grew from there, and then I played chess. I played chess, so and in prison guys like to play chess, so and I was pretty good. And because I was a pretty good chess player, I challenged guys to play chess, and that was really how it started to grow. Because I would beat people, and the inmates would all we call the piece the moves out all over the uh, <laughs> unit where I was playing, and when I. And when I beat them, then all of a sudden, other people wanted to play me. And so it's sort of like one of those deals. <laughs> That's great. Uh, when was the first time you got to go to death row and meet some of those guys and gals? The first week I was there. My, I, the units I was assigned to, uh, one was called the Adjustment Center, and guys that were on death row were in there. I had the other unit was uh, Carson, and that's where the overflow death row was. But when I, you have to understand, when I started working there, there was only, I think it was like 
91 men on death row when I started. And when I left, it was 670. Wow. So the criminal justice system really changed during that time, huh? Yeah. What I learned, what I, what I, because I, I sort of tracked it and even years, election years, more people were sentenced to death than other years. And so uh, all odd years, it wouldn't be as many people. And so the system sort of grew because there was no one being executed. So naturally, you had to have more cells available, and it kept growing and growing. And as it grew, you know, there were more people on my, on my caseload. I had a guy, two guys, uh, Benjamin Hardister and Larry Browning, that uh, were volunteers that worked with me. And, you know, we would, take, we would just decide we're going to take this unit. And one day a week, we would get in there early, and we would not leave until every guy was seen by us. And we we talked to every single man, and that was how we started to do the ministry. We never left a guy where he felt like he didn't get a chance to speak to someone. And because of that, they looked forward to us coming. And because they looked forward to us coming, we were able to share our faith. And our presence shared our faith sometimes more than our words. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Bloodline, a journey to discover an up-close view of the cross, revealing God's ultimate mission to save you from sin's destruction. I talked to author Skip Heitzig. Your book is actually structured in a pretty specific way. It sounds a lot like zooming out as far back as you could possibly get, like a Google Maps. (laughs) Yeah. Why did you decide to structure it that way? I wanted to show the Bible. You can look at it from 30 miles you know, up in outer space that there's one solid line that goes through the whole book as a theme. And if you forget everything else in it, don't forget that. I think that was Jesus' own approach. In Luke 24, after the resurrection, when Jesus appears to two disciples, it says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He kind of went through thematically, but from the beginning all the way through to show his point. And so Bloodline takes that approach. To join the journey, visit thebloodlinebook.com. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. So I'm, I'm curious how, when you're having conversations and, and building relationships with the inmates, how do you broach the topic of the crime that brought them there in the first place? I don't, because the crime does not make a difference to me. I mean, there are some horrific things that people have done, 
and I and I always think, you know, I, because I was a drug dealer, gang member, and all the and all the stuff I've done. I mean, all the stuff I've done, and somehow in the midst of all my stuff, God was able to kill away something and say there's still grace and mercy prepared, and it had my name on it. So me trying to ask these guys what they did, it, it, it didn't make a difference to me in a sense because what they did was not going to change. So I would tell people all the time, you may have committed a crime, but are you your crime? Are you that murderer? Are you that person? And I have children that I had little children when I started. And I, and I would just think about my children, but yet I could not go to the point of worrying about what crime they committed because being a human being, being a, the person that I am, if I started to focus on the crime, I felt like I could not do the ministry I was called to do because I would have some jaded opinions about the person based on me knowing more about what their crime was. So as you began to to build these relationships and, and sustain them over the years that you worked at the prison, um, what was it like to see people either become Christians or grow in their faith? Uh, for me, that was the most exciting thing about uh, being able to be a chaplain in a prison. In the ministry, in the communities, in local churches, you sort of see people walk up and they make a decision to accept Christ and you may see them the next Sunday or the maybe one day of the week and Sunday. Yet when you see these guys that make a decision, you see them on a regular basis and you see that either they're growing, they truly embrace what they've said, or they're not. And the chaplain's role, if you are going to be a chaplain, is to call, correct, and challenge. And so if a man says to me that I've made a decision for Christ, I've baptized him, then my role is to bring to remembrance what he did and continue to say to him and challenge him, are you living that? Are you truly living that? And so for me to see those guys that that make a trans, you know, they talk about rehabilitation in prison and it's not really rehabilitation. It's regeneration. My job it's regeneration, which means it doesn't come by man. It comes by the Holy spirit. Uh, and so for me, I, the regeneration process, it's exciting. It's, it's truly exciting. I, I'm not completely up to date on California's history with the death penalty, but what I think I understand is that, they did suspend the death penalty for a period of time, which was when you got there. And then, as you mentioned, in 1992, I guess, was when they began to resume it. Well, they they suspended it in 78. They resumed it as a penalty, as a process in 79 or 79 uh, discontinued 80. Somewhere in that time, they brought it back. Yet no one was executed. Uh, and there had not been any executions for a number of years. So there were people that had been sentenced to death after they stopped the death penalty. They reintroduced it, and people were sentenced to death, yet they had not been executed. So uh, currently we have a moratorium in California on executions. The governor just announced that uh, a 
couple of weeks ago. Uh, so there's no one that's on condemn row now that will be executed while he's the governor. Yet there'll still be people. The numbers are still going to go up. Uh, there's still going to be people that are going to be sentenced to death. And so even when there was no executions until the day that Robbie was executed, and that was in April, that was April 21st, 1992, there were still people coming on death row. How did you spiritually prepare yourself for Robbie's execution? I, I had the right of procedure. I, I had the right to protocol because I realized there was nothing in writing that told me what I was supposed to do in the in the instance of an execution. Who was I supposed to minister to? How was I supposed to? So a lot of my preparation was writing that protocol, ministering. You know, and, and I started in a really strange place because I had been ministering to Robbie for so long, but I also realized there were going to there are people on the execution team, and I needed to minister to those people because after the execution, they needed to be okay. I needed to minister to the witnesses that were family members to to some extent because. They were going to see something that I don't know if they were prepared for. The inmates' family members are going to be there. So I started making this list of all the different people that needed ministry because I knew I was going to be with Robbie every day. So that was, but I needed to figure out, God, how can I be a presence in these other groups' lives so that this process won't damage them for life? So that was sort of how I prepared uh, prayer. I spoke to my pastor, Bishop Donald Green. Uh, he, on a regular basis, I mean, regular basis, he would pray with me and just sort of give me the encouragement to be strong in a process that I knew nothing about. And no one could really, there was no one alive that could tell me what I needed to do in terms of the death row process for San Quentin. So I had I had to write it, and that was that was part of my process. So it sounds like you learned a lot from that process. I'm curious what other things you might have learned that someone who's not involved with the criminal justice system at all, or hasn't been to death row, wouldn't know about about the, how that process works, and how a chaplain in particular is a part of that. Well, I, I think first and foremost. What I learned is, as I've stated over and over again, do not focus on the crime, focus on the individual. As a chaplain or any anyone, take it for granted that the crime is the crime. Yet, if we think about Christ, he's Jesus the Christ, and he's the Christ because he hangs on a cross. And while he's hanging there, there's two people. They're both condemned as well. Yet one in the process simply says, will you remember me? And he says, this day you'll be with me in paradise. So even in the midst of him dying, even in the midst of him being on death row, he took pause to say to someone that said to him, I'm sorry, I want to do, I, I realize now that there's something different for my life. And he says, you'll be with me. So I, I just simply say that as a as a Christian chaplain, 
My job is simply to tell people about Christ. People that are in the community, if you just if you focus on the Christ element, if you focus on the Christ element and not the crime, let, let's take the crime as a given, and let's just say, is there anyone that does not need Christ? Is there anyone that does not is not worthy of the price? And for me, I, I can't say no to that. I, I, I can't say that, that because of who I am and what I've done in my life, I think anyone, I, I don't want anyone to die without the opportunity to know Christ. I just don't want that to happen. So I, I'm curious then, after Robbie was executed, how did that affect you spiritually? It really hurt me. I mean, the thing that happened with Robbie The week before his execution, uh, I was home having dinner with my family. My prison phone rings. I get up from the table and grab the phone. It's right in the. It's in the room where the table is, the dinner table, and it's Robbie. And he says, "Hey, this is Rock." I said, "Yeah, well, I'll, I'll be there as soon as I finish dinner." I thought he was calling because he was wondering what time I was coming. He says, "No, I'm calling because I want to speak to your children." I said, "Huh?" He says, "Well, you said." Is it okay if I speak to your daughter and your son? So I say to my wife, this is Robbie. And he wants to talk to the kids. She says, talk to me. I said, yeah. And so she says, okay, which is my wife understanding beyond my understanding. And he tells my daughter, uh, I understand that you are against the death penalty and I just want to let you know your dad talks about you and uh, I'm praying for you and keep doing what you're doing and keep believing the way you're believing. He tells my son, your dad talks about you and he says that you are in favor of the death penalty. And these are little kids that we've had these conversations because I wanted them to know what dad was doing because dad's name was in the paper and people were talking about that. And I wanted them to know, and they're young, they're young. And he says, Keep believing the way you're believing. And he says, your dad says you're a baseball player. And when you next game hit a home run for me. And so Robbie called. And because I had been talking to him about my children, but talking to my children about the process, because the process does not just affect the person that's doing the ministry. It affects their family. My children were young. They were in elementary school. and People in Marin and around the world were talking about this execution of Robbie Harris. There were all these TV cameras and trucks, and we lived on the grounds of the prison. And they were our kids would come home and have to go through media to get to the house on the bus. And so I wanted them to know what was going on, and I wanted to know what their opinions was. And my daughter was against the death penalty. My son was for it, and. In the process, Robbie called and told them both, "You're right." He didn't. He he never said that I don't deserve what I'm getting. When Robbie accepted the Lord, he had peace with what was going to happen to him, and he started trying to figure out how can I share this peace with other people. So it was interesting watching Robbie as the execution came. Yet on the day of the execution. I'm walking him into the gas chamber, 
and he stops. And so everyone gets nervous. And he says, Hey, uh, to these four men that are walking in, he says, I need you to know this is nothing personal. I know you're just doing your job. And he says that I've been praying for you. Wow. And, and, and so that was the, that was the first thing. Then he looks at the warden and says, you know, I had a lot of bad thoughts about you. He says, but Chaplain Smith says you're a good man. And he says, and you like to fish and maybe someday you'll get to heaven with me and we'll be able to go fishing. Then I walked him into the chamber and I stood there as they strapped him in and we waited and we waited. And then we, and then there was a stay of execution. So they take, they take them out. And when they take them out, those four men that he had said those words to, as they're walking them back to this death chamber, they say to him, Harris, we knew if anyone could do it, you could do it. They were so excited. And they, I believe that those words they were sharing was because of the peace he gave them. We go back to the, you know, we go back to the chamber and phone rings as his attorney says, hey, I got good news and bad news. And hey, what's the good news? You got to stay. Yes, I know it. What's the bad news? It's only for four hours. Oh, my gosh. And that's when I broke down. That's what I, I, I there's like two chain, there's two cells in the death chamber area. And I went to the corner wall away from Robbie and I just broke down because I, I wondered, I said, God, we finally got him there to that point where there was unbelievable peace in that moment. And then this, and Robbie just fell on the mattress that was in that, in that cell. And, you know, we had played our last game of chess and, you know, we had said our goodbyes and yet here we were, we we're going to have four more hours of what do we do now? What, what do we do now? What do we do now that we've already said goodbye and yet goodbye was not goodbye. You still minister. You still. So what I did was what I, the only thing I know to do, I took out the word and just started to read different scriptures to them. So that, that's how, that's what it, so, and when I walked them back in and I knew this time they were going to do it, they had a camera that they wanted to film it so they could see if it was cruel and unusual punishment. And after he was pronounced dead, there was this cheer that went up and everyone rushed out of the execution chamber and they left the camera rolling. And it was just me, the camera and Robbie. And I looked at him slumped over in that chair with that camera red light flashing. And before he had gone, he said this to me as part of our minute. He says, you know, if everything you said about this Christ that I've accepted is true, there's going to be a white hearse waiting for me outside. That's what's going to carry me from here. White hearse. Well, when I get out, the, when the first thing I see when I walk out the door, and remember, it's no one in there now, but Robbie, who is dead, this camera that's still flick, flickering is still on, and I open up the door. And there's this white hearse waiting outside. And for me, that was God affirming that this work that he had called me to, although difficult, was part of the task of what he told me to do. And he was going to be with me and present with me throughout all of it. I had unbelievable pain because of the length of time I administered to him. Yet when I saw that hearse, I saw Christ's presence 
for a moment just to affirm and reassure me that he was there with me and he would hold me up. And I needed that like you wouldn't believe. I needed to know that Christ was still with me even after something like that. I'm wondering then, just to kind of bring this conversation back to where we were talking in the beginning, it sounds like you were able to provide a lot of comfort and reassurance and to some extent companionship and solidarity to Robbie because you were able to be there in person rather than watching the execution take place, but you were right there with him. Well, yeah. And and I mean, we, what in California, you're not in the, I mean, if the execution, the original execution for us was gas. So naturally we were not in the chamber. And so our goodbyes were standing there while they strapped you in the chair. And so we never moved to a different process. Even when we went through lethal injection, uh, we never moved. What we did was the inmate knew that we would walk them in, stay there with them until they had strapped them in. Then we would walk around to a place where we could look at him outside of the chamber. And while we're looking at him also, I, I, I would tell the other chaplains, what we're doing also is being a presence for the other people that, because people don't know what they're going to see. I mean, you don't grow up one day to say, I want to watch a person die. So you don't know what you're going to see. You don't know. And so you minister what they've done with uh, these two cases that you're talking about with Dominic Ray and Patrick Murphy, they were denying. I mean, they said, well, you can't be in the chamber with them. I don't know if they're saying that they can't walk them into the chamber. Uh, are they yet be yet a, if their process was to allow a person to stand there with that person and whether standing there praying with them are saying words that that person heard, which were words of peace as he died, then if that was the state's process, then they should allow that process to go forth and to deny that. To and, and what happens is inmates communicate among themselves. So they're telling a the guy on death row, you're less than, well, you already told me I was less than. I did a crime, and because I did that crime, I'm less than, and I'm sent to death row. So I understand that. I've done that. I understand you're going to execute me, which is the law of the state. I understand that. I don't understand why I can't have that person that has been giving me comfort for a number of years still be present like the other inmates can. What makes me less than less than? And I believe as Christians, we fight for all people. And it's not about their faith. It's about the confidence and the liberty that we have in Christ that I would tell people all the time, I'm not concerned about someone who's a Muslim or Buddhist or whatever the faith may be because I have so much confidence in my faith relationship with Christ as a Christian that what they determine to be does not change who I am. And I believe some people don't have the same level of confidence, so they're afraid. Why would you be afraid as a Christian of someone else? Your faith and your belief is in there's no one but Christ. There's no other person. 
you know, you know, he says, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there, you may be also. If you believe that, then whatever anyone else does, if they don't accept that, that's their decision. But you have to have faith in yours to the point that you, if that's their faith practice, does that bother, does that interfere with your relationship with Christ? I say no, it should not. It's a good word. I wanted to, um, well, first off, thank you for sharing that. Um, I wanted to return to the something that you had said about being there, not just for the um, the inmate who is being executed, but also for everyone else that's observing it and for the families as well, um, which is something that I confess I had not thought about. And I wondered if that also plays into why it's important to you for chaplains to be present um, is for the for everyone else as well. And that why it may have been important for in these two cases for these men to have chaplains present for them, because they were also maybe even thinking about those other people as well. And it's very important. And people sort of see the person laying on the gurney. They don't necessarily see the people that have to push the plunger or pull the lever in our case where we started with gas that person that's pushing the plunger that person that's pulling the lever they know that they're involved in death those people need to be ministered to and if you're in the back with them or in that area with them then you're present now your faith may be different uh, than this person who is a Muslim or Buddhist, yet somehow or another, there's a process of belief uh, for the inmate. If their family are also, if that inmate's family is Muslim, do that. That family does that family want to hear their imam say to them what that what the inmate was saying at the end. These Buddhists, uh, do they want that boss to be able to say it? And I can't tell you what questions. I can't tell you if the family are all Buddhist or it's just the inmate, because inmates start to practice different faith than their family when they're sent to prison in some cases. Uh, what I can tell you is that inmate was looking for a way to stay by in peace. And because you said, no, you can't have that person, even in his death, there was no peace. Uh, we constantly say that, you know, that when they're executed or whatever else, they're going to be, you know, there's going to be closure. Executions don't bring closure. It just means someone has died. You still are going to think about it. And if you're a witness to an execution, you better know for sure that you're going to think about what you saw. And you're not going to just think about it. And, and let it go. There's going to be moments when it comes back up and you're going to have to say, and maybe some people have joy with what they, oh, I saw him die because of what he did. But you're still thinking, I saw someone die. And that and that's something you have to deal with. How many executions were you present for? Twelve. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing all of this really um heavy stuff with us. We really appreciate. Yeah. You know, I, you know yeah. I, I really apologize for, I, I really felt like, you know, it might've been too heavy. And no, no, I, no. I, I just wanted to, you know, there's a reality around the death penalty that I hope people get to understand. I think, I think 
that more of us need to hear about that. More of us need to think about it and face it. I think that's really important. Um, Regardless of what you think about the death penalty and the position you hold on it, I think it's important for us to think about that more. And so I appreciate your being honest and being um, direct and sharing your experience. And I also appreciate, I at least was very encouraged by the way that God met you through the story you were telling about Robbie's death. It was a very difficult thing, but the way that God ministered to you and you were able to minister to him was very encouraging to me. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't simply just darkness. There was light as well. And I very much appreciated that. So thank you. Well, thank you guys. And, uh, no, like I said, I have this, my book is called death row chaplain. And I would, and I, and I sort of, I talk about the different guys who were on death row and, I talk about my experience in prison and I talk about guys who were on death row and were exonerated and went home. I talk about what happens in that case. And so, you know, if you get a chance, I'd love for you to read it. You guys, I just think it's, uh, and I'm not just saying it. I mean, because you're talking about the death penalty at this point, uh, that's something that's dear to my heart, even though I don't work at San Quentin anymore. Absolutely. For any listeners who have feedback on this episode, you can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We're also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And Caleb, as some of you guys may know, is actually responsible for a lot of the pieces that end up in the print publication that comes out. Caleb, our April issue is currently out. Is there anything that you're hoping that subscribers will make sure they read? Yeah, lots, actually. There's a lot of good stuff in this issue, um, and um, I'm very excited for our uh, subscribers and everybody to read it. Um, and so I encourage you to, um, if you've got a copy or if you don't have a copy, maybe see if you can go get one um, and sit down with that. We're um, about to enter into Holy Week. We're heading towards Easter um, and there's a lot of good content related to that. I'm going to save some of that maybe for next week, but a particular piece that I wanted to highlight is a piece about the Bible Project, which is a um, it's a studio and based out of Portland, Oregon, and they make uh, videos that explain the Bible in a really accessible way. But it's also based on really solid scholarship. And so we um, we got an opportunity to talk to the co-founders of the Bible Project and really kind of give you the backstage pass to how that all started and what they do. Um, it's a great article, and I really encourage everybody to read it. And uh, check out The Bible Project if you haven't heard of it or you haven't seen it yet. Um, they do really good work. So if you'd like to read that, you can become a subscriber, and you can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. Orderct.com slash quick to listen. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, and that gives everyone a chance to share something that's been going on in their lives that's brought them joy. Caleb, I hope you're ready to share something with us. Yeah. Um, so uh, I am a member of an Anglican church, um, which means we like to do lots of liturgical things. And when Holy Week rolls around, which is starting uh, this Sunday with Palm Sunday and goes the whole week, there's lots of liturgical things to do. Um, which means that um, I'm in the middle of a preparation season because I'm helping um, with uh, leading worship and helping to facilitate some of that stuff. And honestly, it is a joy to prepare. Um, I'm involved with a uh, dance presentation during one of the during a Holy Saturday. It's a group of mostly younger um, men and some boys as well. 
and uh, it's really fun just to to move with them and to it's an embodied form of worship that I don't get a chance to do very much uh, and it's such a joy and a privilege it's it's a ton of fun there's so much energy in life um, a lot of these guys are you know in high school or early college and they just have a ton of energy and it's it's really inspiring to to dance with them um, and I'm not a very good dancer but um, it's really fun to be with them and to do that and I'm really looking forward to being able to present that um, as an offering to God but also as a inspiration to everybody and people can find you on Twitter yep um, I'm at Twitter at C Adams Lindgren that's C A D A M S L I N D G R E N I don't tweet a whole lot but absolutely follow me awesome all right Chaplain Smith what do you want to add. I think some of the, the biggest joy that I've been experiencing is we celebrated my wife's 60th birthday and we had this dinner and I, we've had weeks and weeks of preparation and I've been married for 42 years and just the joy of seeing my wife have joy because sometimes when you're a pastor or a minister, the focus is on you and just to see the focus on my wife was an unbelievable joy and she deserved it. I mean, my wife, Angel, is an angel. She has endured so much as a result of me learning how to truly love the Lord. And she's been there with me since she was 18 years old. And so for that, I was just like, well, I was blown away to watch her joy, to watch the happiness and now watching her write letters and cards to people still writing thank yous. That is so awesome to me. And so then the other thing is I have two granddaughters and they're starting gymnastics. So I get to go, my daughter, Ebony, signed them up. It's her job to take them every week. She invited my wife and I, and sometimes I go, but I get to watch them. And my granddaughters are like six years old, nine years old, and they're like running around and they're doing it, and, and I'm looking at the joy on their faces, and I'm like thinking, this is so cool. You know, and they fall down, they tumble, then they look to see if I'm watching, and, you know, what a joy. What a joy. And I'm going to be going to Fort Irwin to speak with the troops. Wow. I am so excited about that. Our service personnel, I mean, the work they do is unbelievable, and I any opportunity I have to honor them. So I'm honored that they wanted me to come speak to them. So for me, for me that's the stuff, you know, and, and, and four, I got four things. The ah. fourth thing is our family has something called Franklin Street Home, which is a transition home for men coming out of prison. Many of them are teenagers when they enter and they come out at 40 plus years old and we give them a chance to reenter society with training. So that's a huge deal to us, having our Franklin Street home. And say the name of your book one more time, if people can find it. Uh, Death Row Chaplain, uh, Unbelievable uh, True Stories from America's Most Notorious Prison. It's called Death Row Chaplain. All right. My precious moment is that I got to go to Ann Arbor this weekend to visit a very good college friend of mine who um, recently moved into a community where he's kind of turned his house into like a community hub for a lot of different teenagers that live around the neighborhood. Um, and he's doing it with a lot of people from his church. About I think the team is about 10 different people who are just really trying to befriend, mentor, hang out with, teach, do Bible studies with um, all these different 
young people. And it's kind of really cool just to see the way that he's like leaned into his spiritual life and prayer and seen God move. Um, and is really open to that. So I really enjoy getting to see him push himself in that way. Yeah. Go Kevin. Awesome. All right. People can find me on Twitter at M E P A Y N L. That is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of quick to listen. We really appreciate all of you who tune in week in and week out. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can rate it, review it on Apple Podcasts. You can also show your support by becoming a subscriber to Christianity Today. That's, again, orderct.com slash quick to listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Cray Allred, and Richard Clark with music by Swoops. We'll see you all next week. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Bloodline. Bloodline, the new book by Skip Heitzig, takes you on a journey to discover an up-close view of the cross, revealing God's ultimate mission to save you from sin's destruction. To join the journey, visit thebloodlinebook.com.